welcome to the Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of the Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak, and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, as always, it's a pleasure to have you back with us on the Allegorical Life podcast. Today we're talking about children and the gifts that they bring into the world, gifts that we as adults don't necessarily always recognize or understand. So Mark, to start us off, why don't you tell us the story of Gillian Lynn? So Gillian Lynn was um, uh, was a, a, a world-class dancer. Uh, she worked with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber as a choreographer uh, on a number of his productions and, and, and was also a, a lead dancer in the London School of Ballet. Um, so most people in the arts would know of Gillian Lynn, but not many would know her story. And uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who wrote a book called The Element, uh, told this wonderful story of what she was like when she was little. And it's that classic um, uh, Be Mindful of Children Bearing Gifts, which is the blog that I, you know, it's sort of dedicated to Gillian and other people. Um, when she was little, she was in class, she, she couldn't sit still. Um, she fidgeted a lot. She was always talking, um, always moving around. And the teacher saw it as a great distraction and, uh, and, and wasn't able, essentially wasn't able to change her behaviour. Uh, and she didn't fit in in accordance with the teacher's expectations and probably the uh, cu- curriculum that they were trying to teach the kids. So the, the teacher brought the parents in and said, look, I th- think your um, daughter's uh, needs to go to a special school and needs to needs to be referred to a psychologist because uh, she's you know clearly disruptive and uh, isn't learning properly and and maybe needs and she needs to go somewhere else and so the parents took her to a psychologist and um and he took her into the room and he sort of sat down with uh Julian and the parents and and started to talk to them and and she had this sense that um he was important to her but she didn't know why and, and that fascinated me in my own um uh, when I sort of heard the story, because even as a young girl, she had this sense that this man was important to her, even though he was obviously, you know, many years older. And so she was sitting there quietly as the parents were talking away and she answered the questions that she was asked. And then the psychologist got up and said, look, I just need to talk to parents outside the room for a minute. Um, can you just sit here and uh, we'll be back shortly? And he put on some music and walked out and took the parents with him. And, um, as he left and closed the door, um, and the door, of course, had a small glass window in it, the psychologist said to the parents, look, watch this. And uh, when Gillian thought that nobody was watching, she got up and started to dance. Uh, and it turned out that she could only process her thoughts by moving by, by through, through, uh, you know, through the art of dance and the, and the act of sort of moving the body in accordance with music or rhythm or uh, uh, you know, as a way of expression, essentially. And so the psychologist turned to her parents and said, look, she's a dancer, take her to a dance school. Um, and that was the start of her very, very successful career. So she exhibited at a very young age, you know, probably kindergarten or year one or something, uh, attributes or, you know, a life path that was unfolding before people's eyes. 
and he was an education system. This is what Ken Robinson talks about a lot, an education system that just doesn't recognise those talents and, and can't see it. Um, and it really sort of highlighted uh, my own son, for example, all, all three kids really, but but my younger son, you know, when he was about Julian Lynn's age when she was first identified as a potential dancer, um, Lachlan saw the world as a, a stage and life as a movie, and, and he still does. He interprets all of his emotions and uh, the way he, he interacts with the world through character, and he does it very successfully. He's a very funny man, and he's a very compassionate man as well. Um, but he's he had that gift at three or four. I mean, he brought a language with him. Uh, he could use multi-syllable words in perfect context at the age of three. And it used to fascinate me that it, it's not language that I'd ever taught him, but he was having almost adult conversations at three, four and five years of age. When he was eight, um, he and I, because I was divorced then, long-time divorced, but he and I would go away together. And, and, and bearing in mind he's eight, he was eight years of age, we, we would sit in a restaurant for three hours and talk. And, and he would have me in stitches about about the way he viewed the world and um, and just his intellect and his and his narrative and his uh, vocabulary was extraordinary. So, you know, he he brought those gifts with him. There's no doubt about that. And and the theologies have, particularly Eastern theologies, have a lot to say about this, particularly around reincarnation. And it's it's not necessarily comfortable, or it's not comfortable at all in Western thought. Um, but it is in Eastern thought, and it's really an interesting thing to contemplate. You know, it, it, there's a philosophy or a philosophical framing called eschatology, which is in the in the world of theology, and it simply says this: you know, wh- where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? And those three questions we all ask ourselves at some point in our lives. You know, where did I come from? Uh, you know, what am I doing here? And, and where do I go? Um, it's really worth contemplating, particularly for young children. Um, if you've got young kids or, or nephews or nieces, um, see if you can see their gifts because they bring them. And so, so sometimes it's quite overt and sometimes it's quite subtle. But but uh, so I've seen it in my own kids. I mean, my other two kids are the same. You know, they brought gifts with them which were manifested very early in life. Um, and I think it's really worth looking at. And I, and I do think that you know, I, I personally think we've been here before and we'll be here again, but, but we have imprints upon our minds, part of our karma that we bring with us, and that plays out um, either constructively um, in life or potentially destructively in life, depending upon the emphasis we place on those aspects of mind that we've brought with us. So so Julian Lin, Lin's story is a, is a classic example of, um, you know, a young child who brought gifts to the world and made an enormous difference. Uh, through those gifts. Stories of children like Gillian Lynn are sometimes a bit of a surprise to us still, aren't they? Why do you think we're still more compelled to live the lives that are generally expected of us? I think there's a few reasons, um, Jordan. I think I think we're, and I talk a lot about this, how, how caught up we are in our own worlds and our own minds, and, you know, the mind of self and as opposed to the mind of other. And so I think that blinds us sometimes. I think we, we, we can't see the gifts because we're too caught up in our own thoughts. I think, I think also society has quite, uh, quite um, strict expectations upon us as to, you know, what we should be doing or how we should be thinking, you know, thou shalt, I should. Um, and, and that often robs us of the opportunity to see what the kids have brought along as well. And some kids it's very subtle, so it doesn't turn up until much later in their lives. It's not necessarily, you know, totally overt. 
you know, I've got a, a, a you know a good friend of mine who's a who's raised a strict Catholic, and um, but he's gay. Do you know what I mean? So he had to leave his faith because the church the church just couldn't the, the doctor of the church couldn't you know sort of accept or permit his sexuality, and so he still has a lot of faith, but but he had to leave his religion because. The religion doesn't uh, doesn't permit it. it. You know, it has some tolerance for it, and the tolerance is growing, and that's a good thing. But but you can just see the pressure he was under as a young boy to be compliant with a certain way of thinking and a certain way of being, and it was just working completely against his nature. And yet, this is not an unfamiliar story, of course, in society. Um, so I do think um, you know we are social beings. Um, you know, we are very much influenced by our cultures and you know, our social positioning and, and the conversations that happen around us and, and you know, the media and the and uh, uh, other things that, you know, help to shape who we are and, and how we think. So that, those things are somewhat stereotypical or somewhat narrow. Um, and we would do well to broaden them or just to, you know, take the time and just have a look at you know, what talents are children bringing because, and, and I, I know we'll get to this in a minute, but they all bring a sensitivity and, you um, the thing that really concerns me is that we have a society that more and more is trying to beat that out of them, <laughs> and, uh, and and it's the very thing the world needs. You know, it's, it's not. I spoke at an international conference this week in Perth um, around notions of vulnerability and invulnerability, and I'll blog about this a little bit later in in the year. But um, but you know, we we shut down anything that implies um, being sensitive or anything that implies being vulnerable because we see it as weakness, or more importantly, we fear it. We fear what we might discover if if we if we show a sensitivity. And kids don't have that barrier. That they're they're uh, I think they're you know they're very sensitive to the world and very sensitive to emotionality. And um, and as they get older, their cognition takes over, and then you know thoughts precede feelings. But kids, when they're very young, um, feeling precedes thought, and so they're very very open to how they feel and what's going on around them, and that kind of switches over as they get older, which is probably okay. It's how you, how we have to navigate the world and survive in it. But um, but but shutting down that sensitivity and shutting shutting down those gifts, uh, I think, causes people enormous harm and suffering, uh, enormous grief. Now, Mark, just on the topic of survival, it occurs to me that the older we get, the more inclined we might be to shut down that sensitivity. Uh, And it may be just that we do that as a survival technique, Uh, which then begs the question, I guess, how do we survive in the world the way it is and still allow ourselves to be sensitive? That's the great tension in life, I think, Jordan. Um, and and it's, it's very difficult to navigate because I've seen the insensitivity or the invulnerability break people. Uh, I was having dinner with a colleague only only two nights ago in Perth, and he just opened up and said, "You know, twelve months ago I had a breakdown." He said, "I just broke up," and you know, and, and he's been in emergency services a long time, and you know, he's telling me a story of another colleague, a very very senior police officer who I've had great admiration for and known for years, a very high ranking, uh, walked into his office uh, a little while ago, put his gun on the table, and said to his uh, uh, um, chief of staff, "You need to take care of this." Because he feared what he would do with that gun in his presence, and um, I hear these stories all the time. And so, you know, people have lived very honourable lives, and you know, in the service of others, but they've been expected to be a certain way, and uh, and they can't be that way anymore. And, they, and the sensitivity catches up with them, and and so they have to go and express it, and live it, and and experience it in quite a concentrated way, 
because I think the mind or the soul, you know, the spirit, however, however you determine the, the inner world, the inner workings of your mind, needs to have that experience. It needs to have that expression. So if it's not permitted when we're younger and it's bottled up and it's constrained or contained or denied, I think it eventually it bursts open anyway. And so, so that great tension in the world between, you know, how do you survive a, you know, a fairly brutish world, a very pretty tough world that demands a lot from us, and um, particularly around, as I said, being entrepreneurial or being independently and individually progressive, um, uh, how do you sort of balance that up, with, which means we're competing with each other, essentially. How do, you, how do you balance that up with the need to express, the need to relate, uh, the need to acknowledge, and uh, that's a tension I'm looking at in my PhD. Is that you know, you know, there's got to be a middle ground there somewhere. I mean, we we are uh, as a neoliberalist society, we're we're so driven to compete um, in everything that we do that it's not it's, and, and and to be in, here's the irony to be an individual. So we speak to the individual in public policy all the time, but we don't speak to the whole individual. We only speak to the entrepreneurial part. You know the competitive part, the economic part. Um, you know the part that's productive, the part that's got you know a contribution to make in an economic sense to society. But what about the rest of the individual? If we're going to speak to the individual, why not speak to the whole person, not just the bit that we like or the bit we want to see? And this goes back to the very point about kids: is that we try and shape them to be ready to compete in the world. Um, we have to do that, you know, it's a competitive world, but how do you balance those equities? I, I think we're you know, a long way from getting that right. But the reason I speak to it a lot is to try and introduce a narrative or introduce a, a, a stream of consciousness or thinking that says, look, it's actually all right to be sensitive, you know, it's kind of it's kind of part of being human. Um, and, and, it's a, it, and if nothing else, you know, it's a pressure relief valve for people to say, crikey, and I've been feeling that way for years. And giving people permission to be sensitive, and I, and I don't mean being a blubbering mess every time. There's a you know there's a romantic movie on TV. It's it's being very plugged into how people feel themselves, but also how others feel, and 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 sort of understanding that relatedness between between all of us as human beings, and th that's essentially how um, you sort of see the suffering in another. And, and, and even the word suffering, people run away from that because they don't want to experience it, not realising they're living it every day. Uh, so that's so very pervasive suffering in the human mind. And so it's a, another word that's difficult to speak to, but, but you know, every, everybody navigates their complexities every day of the week. Um, I was saying um, at the conference on Thursday in Perth, you know, in front of 1,500 people at, that I, I find it fascinating that seven or eight years ago you'd get on a plane and uh, you'd sit next to somebody, you'd probably exchange pleasantries, you'd probably say, how was your day? Or are you going home or you're heading to work and you know, have a bit of a chat about that, maybe a chat about the weather. You might break into a longer conversation because you found a, you know, some, some commonality, um, shared network or something, or you might just go back and read, your, read the newspaper or just quietly sit. But you get on a plane today and no one speaks to anybody. Everybody sits straight down. They don't look sideways. They go straight for their headphones or they get lost in the screens on their phone. And, um, and what's all that about? Well, that's all about desperately trying to find space and desperately trying to find some sense of peace of mind. But there's nothing to do with relatedness. And, and so we are driving ourselves or we're being driven, you know, I think it's mutual, to be so individualised that we're closing out the rest of the world. And, and that is an extreme insensitivity uh, and, and an extreme invulnerability. And, and, that, and 
I think I might have quoted this um, in a previous blog, but Hugh Mackay writes in his book, uh, Australia Reimagined, that, you know, 2 million Australians are currently clinically diagnosed with depression and similar amounts are diagnosed with anxiety. We consume enough um, uh, methamphetamines and antidepressants that they can be detected in Sydney Harbour. Uh, you can actually detect them in the water of Sydney Harbour. So what on earth are we doing to ourselves to medicate our minds in order to avoid our sufferings? And I think that part of that is just avoiding our sensitivities and, and not not allowing it to be expressed or, or speaking to them in sensible and confident ways. And Mark, in your blog post, which you titled Be Mindful of Children Bearing Gifts, you talked about how every child brings a gift with them into the world. What are your tips for people who feel that their own gifts haven't been uh, realised or fully uh, understood? Um, that's a it's a really good question, Jordan. I've, I've thought a lot about this. I think I would always say to people, never give up. And um, and if you don't know what they are, ask your parents or someone who knew you as a as a young child, someone you could trust who could give you a perspective. And if that's not available, then then you know through meditation or quiet reflection, you, you will discover it. You, you will know. You'll be able to look back in your childhood and see what was the thing that made your heart sing, or the thing that was you know sort of close to your true nature. Um, I think there's always the, the option or the possibility of bringing that gift to the world. And, and look, I, I use the world in a very metaphoric way. So the world to me is whatever presents to your consciousness, to your senses, you know, your, your, your eyesight, your, your hearing, you know, your, your taste, your smell and your touch um, and, your, and, your, and your mentality. So, you know, your ability to cognize things. But so, so really the world is the, the, you know, the place in which you interact, the people in which you interact with. And that's where you can bring your gifts. So, you know, you, you don't have to take them to London. We don't have to take them to New York. I mean, you could, but really you could take them to your mum or you could take them to your kids or you could take them to your work colleagues. So so I think it's worth reflecting upon, you know, what is it you brought to the world? Because the world the world needs it. That's why you bought it. That's why you came here, to, to offer it to the world, whatever, that, whatever the world is for you. Um, you know, that gift needs to be presented. Many people find it in... Um, depression or depressive episodes, dark nights of the soul, you know, the night sea journey. Uh, with, with, there's, there's many gifts that are discovered in, the, in that journey as well. And, of course, you know, often we come back out of those depressions and that, that darkness, not realising we've brought something back with us. Um, and, that's the skill, uh, and that's the skill, I think, to navigate the complexities of, of those emotions. But I think it's also the ability to share those experiences with other people who are, either have or will or are, uh, going through uh, very similar things, and so so really not a minute's wasted. Even the even the difficult times are an opportunity, uh, you know, to either express a gift or to learn something and then offer it back to the world. So so I would say to anybody, look, um, you know, have have the the confidence to 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 go and understand what your gifts are and have the courage to express them and develop a wisdom about how you do that. So, you know, that's that's part of life experience, I think, and it's part of crafting a good life. So you may not do it perfectly well the first time you try, but keep going and just kind of get better as you go along. So so I think that's certainly been my experience, Jordan. I, you know, when I was a little boy, my, my mum will tell you that, I, you know, we'd have a party of 50 people at home and everybody would be laughing but one or two. And uh, I'd go up to mum and I'd say, well, you know, how come Uncle Bob's so sad? And yet the room was full of people laughing and, and celebrating, but I, I, I could see the person who wasn't. Um, and I was concerned about them, and I used to say, what, you know, what's wrong with Uncle Bob? And, um, 
uh, and my mum told me that a few years ago now, but I'm so glad she did because it explains so much about how I see the world. Uh, explains so much about why I took the took the life path that I took in terms of working in crisis and emergency and security management and all that comes with it. That you know I had a propensity to be in that space and to, you know to do whatever I could to you know remove the suffering of another. Um, but it took me a, a long time to understand that that was a gift that I bought the world. I, I carried it as a burden for a long time. And then as the conversation with my mother made me realise that it was actually something I came here with. Um, and that helped me turn it all around, completely turn it around and say, okay, um, that's you know part of why I came. Uh, and so, so, as I said, have the conversations with parents or grandparents if they're available to you and just see what they say about it and, you know, trying to integrate that or incorporate it into your life. And Mark Lassie, do you think that there's a time limit for us to discover the gifts that we've brought with us? No, not at all. I, I think um, some people discover it much later in life and that's because they've had a, perhaps a series of life circumstances when they were younger where they were you know, unable to express it um, or maybe, maybe hadn't fully realised it. Look, I'm going to go right out there and say that you know I think we live many lives, and I, and I think whether it's in this realm or of, you know or in a, another spiritual realm, and but you know we, it doesn't stop, it doesn't end here, Jordan. It's, it's, you know the, all the faiths say that in, in various different ways, and they have different ways of interpreting it, and explaining it, or trying to express it. But but if you just took it as a concept as to how how, how to live your life, and that. And it needs to be a good life and an honourable one because you know there there is there is uh, cause and effect. You know you, you don't want to you want to blaze a trail through this life causing death and destruction because that's exactly what you'll end up with in the next one. Um, so we do take attributes of mind with us, and we you know we take our happiness with us, we take our sorrows as well. Um, so it's worth, that, that, those things are worth contemplating. But but at the end of the day, it's never too late because because it doesn't end at death. You know, so whatever you've brought to this world, whatever you've discovered, which which is true to you, is something you'll need to take with you when you go. So if you don't discover it till you're 70, it's still worth discovering. Um, and it's also the world still needs it. So even at 70, you can be effective in the world. Uh, you know, at 80, you can be effective in the world. I remember my brother-in-law's mother visited me um, oh, six, seven years ago. She's since passed, but she was 92, and she had she had more energy than I did. And I was, I was my late 40s back then, and... And I remember saying to her, you know, how do you do this? And she said, because she would get up at six thirty in the morning, you know, have breakfast. Um, uh, she would um, she would walk the um, uh, she would walk the art gallery. You know, she'd come back home, have lunch. She'd go off and do something else. She'd come back home. She'd go out to dinner with us. You know, she'd go to bed as late as we did. She'd be up the next morning and into it again. And she was ninety two. And I and I said, how do you do it? She said, look, I, I can tell you. She said, uh, life never gets any easier. She said, you just get more skillful at dealing with it. <laughs> and uh, that was part of part of her gift was to was have this incredible pragmatism about life and you know she'd been through a lot she, uh, you know an enormous amount she'd lost loved ones and you know she'd lived a lived a full life and a complex life but but uh, but she just understood that you know life never really got any easier but but we all got more skillful at navigating and, and so she's a very wise woman and she had you know many many a, a great anecdote to offer the world so. And she did that till her dying breath. Really, you know, she she died at home peacefully at ninety six. But um, so never too late, Jordan. Never too late, and, and I'm sure she took all those gifts with her, you know, on onto the next realm. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes, and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you, and we hope to have you with us again soon.